Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. In this episode, I interview Karen Cullerman on the subject of population. We touched on this briefly during the Teotihuacan specials, particularly in relation to the ancient ideas of Malthus that famine might correct natural excesses of human population in due course. In that case, a technological fix in the form of agricultural and green revolutions allowed the earth to support many times more people than it did in Malthus's day. But how sustainable is this? And if you decide that the world is overpopulated and there aren't enough natural resources to allow everyone to live fulfilling lives, what could we do to change this situation? Whenever I read any article about the environment, people in the comments sections are often quick to blame overpopulation rather than overconsumption, but seldom suggest any solutions to the latter that aren't terrifying. So, all this means that we have an interesting interview in store today. Kevin Cullerman is a PhD candidate at the UCL Department of Political Theory and a practicing lawyer specialised in public financial services and regulatory law. In the course of her PhD, she's published several articles in both the academic and popular press, and they're all well worth reading. In this interview, we particularly refer to Any Size Population Will Do, the fallacy of aiming for stabilisation of human numbers. But you can read several of them at ucl.academia.edu slash Karen Cullerman. The link will be in the show notes. Without further ado then, the interview. Karen, thanks very much for coming on the show to talk to me today. Uh... For a little background first, you're a lawyer and a population ethicist. You hold degrees in life sciences, international studies and the law. And now you're studying for a PhD in political theory, focusing on this issue of overpopulation. And how this fits into our physics podcast is everyone who's listened to a few episodes by now will know that we talk about all kinds of societal and technological issues. And a few months ago, we had a series of episodes on potential existential risks and catastrophes. And one of the topics that we dealt with was this idea of overpopulation, the concept that humanity might uh, collapse under the weight of its own consumption and run out of natural resources in some way, that there might be famines or ecological catastrophe brought on by having more people than the Earth has the capacity to carry. But this is a really fraught subject, and with good reason. It's complicated. It brings in concepts about sustainability, equality, social justice, ethics, the law. And it's often difficult to talk about for risk, uh, for the fear of risk of being misrepresented in what you say. And yet I also think that quite often this really complex subject is treated in an oversimplified way. Like every time you read something or write something about the environment, there's inevitably one or more people who say, oh, the problem is overpopulation and nothing will get fixed until we solve this. Um, but then when they say that, they rarely pose any solutions. And when they do, if anything, the solutions are often scarier than the problem. So before we get into the specifics of your research, I'd like to ask... How would you frame the problem of population? Is it necessarily a problem? And how do you think we should discuss it? The way I would frame it is it's a slow, uh, creeping problem that, you know, happens gradually and it's not going to end up in some sort of apocalypse uh, of people's imagination. Because by the time we, you know, we have an apocalypse of people rioting in the streets, you, you would have had overpopulation for 100 years. So one of the challenges with the problem is that people don't know how to picture it. It's very easy to think about a meteor coming and, you know, colliding with Earth and, and causing all sorts of devastation. It's easy to picture pandemics, you know, uh, causing mass mortality. Not terribly realistic, but it's easy to picture. Mm-hmm. When it comes to population, people don't know what it looks like. They, they, and also they don't know how to recognize it because partly they don't know how to visualize it. And they think, oh, it must be that, you know, if people are hungry and starving in droves, then we have overpopulation, but not until then. 
and that's not at all <laughs> what the problem is like. It's it's a bit closer to overfishing. You know, you could have uh, you know a, a fishing fleet that's going out every day and catching the same amount of fish for decades, and they're overfishing and they don't know about it because they're still catching a lot of fish. Maybe they're catching even more fish every year because they're becoming better and better at catching every last fish in the, in the sea. And it doesn't, you know, the fact that they're getting lots of fish does not tell them that the underlying uh, fish stock is, is dwindling and, and until they eventually, it becomes so difficult to catch. It's not like overnight they're not going to find any fish. Eventually catching fish is going to become so hard that they will find that they cannot really make a, a living anymore. But it, it will be a very gradual process. By the time they realize that they're really deep into the problem. And that's a much closer analogy than, you know, Mad Max or, or something like that. When, when it comes to overpopulation, by the time people realize that it's a problem, you've had it for a very long time. <laughs> and it's also quite slow to address because the way you would address overpopulation, frankly, there's only one answer to this, is have fewer children. Mm -hmm. And in, in order for lower fertilities to have an effect, you're looking at decades, not years, it's, it's decades and possibly over a century. And it doesn't mean that you don't do it because there are independent reasons to avoid bringing people in the world if you think their life is going to be terrible for them. But it just means by the time it's obvious that the problem is here and it's serious, you're really in quite deep in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so so that kind of mentality really hasn't come across in the discussion for over overpopulation. People really don't know how to picture it and don't know how to discuss it. They they are trying to describe something else. They're not describing the nature of the problem as it realistically occurs. And, and that leads to distortions throughout in terms of the response that people have. You know, people are much more relaxed about the risks that they want to take with this, not realizing just how very long it takes to change things once you realize that you're in trouble, right? Would you really take... You know, it, would you take a flight, like would you board a plane that doesn't have enough fuel to take you across the Atlantic, but you are flying across the Atlantic, and, and someone says, but we're going to figure out some way to stretch the fuel to take us across the ocean. You know, you say, oh, we'll figure that out first, and then I'll board the plane. Mm -hmm. Or you wouldn't just wing it. <laughs> Yes, yes, but we yeah we do that with population all the time. We we, we have population growth that is unfunded. We don't know where you know extra food, extra jobs are going to come from. We just do it all the time, thinking oh, you know we're going to figure something out. You know, if push comes to shove, I'm sure there's something we can do. And we don't really ask ourselves what would we do, you know, if things come out not as we expect. Mm -hmm. And if people realized that you're basically boarding a plane that does not seem to have enough fuel, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you just realize that this is morally very fraught. Why, why are we doing this? And there is really no good explanation. Mm -hmm. You know, just wanting to have a large family is fair enough. But if you're saying, and I'm willing to contribute to a phenomenon that could mean billions of people have horrible lives and mass extinction occurs so that future generations will not live in a world in any way resembling the world that we have in terms of 
just the natural experience of going out and experiencing actual wildlife rather than just cows and sheep and, and chickens, right? And having, you know, to live in fear for their lives, maybe because, because of rampant climate change, all those things. If you said, okay, if, if that is what the trade-off is, everyone gets to just act exactly on their immediate wishes for uh, family size. And there's a surprisingly fickle, by the way. So you have to ask yourself, really, how important are these wishes? But then you say, and, and on the other hand, the risk that we, you know, the, the trade-off is that we're going to possibly live in, in some sort of hellhole. It's just not plausible. <laughs> it's just not plausible that you can justify everyone acting in this way. But what we do is then not ask those questions. So we're I think we have a few sort of interesting points that are coming out of this. One is the fact that you say people don't really know what an overpopulated world looks like and the fact that we may in fact be living in one now and people wouldn't necessarily realise, you know, people can try and estimate the carrying capacity that Earth has and figure out how many people they believe could sustainably be supported on the Earth. But that's subject to a lot of dispute and, it, it as you say, it's very difficult to know if you're living in an overpopulated world already. Um, and I also think that, as you say, it's it's a problem that's far more difficult to visualize and fit into this framework of existential risks which i think we came into when we did these shows about that you know everyone can imagine what a nuclear war looks like you can even get uh accounts from survivors of hiroshima and nagasaki who can tell you what a nuclear war would be like if, if you were in one of the cities that was targeted but you can't necessarily uh predict what the world will look like after a hundred years where the population is too high for you know such and such a fraction of that but trying to sort of um, make that a little bit more concrete then uh, what do you think would what are what are the kinds of consequences that will happen in this worst case scenario where we have a world that is uh, you know populated unsustainably you might say for for a really long amount of time what if you're going to paint a picture for people of the worst case scenario what sort of things do you think they would be worried about well, I would just say, to start before answering that question, that I don't think that is the worst case scenario. I think that is the scenario we're in. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there's no doubt in my mind that we're overpopulated uh, by several billion. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's really that open to question. It's, it's more like uh, how how open we are to self-delusion <laughs> is, is a different question. If you were on a ship that were overloaded, even if the ship hadn't yet sunk, you you would be able to tell that the ship was overloaded. You know, you might be able to tell, for example, that, you know, water seems to be surprisingly close to where I'm standing, or I cannot help but notice there are cracks, you know, all over the ship, and, and that kind of thing. Or that, you know, the ship is struggling to move, you know, not in, in the speed at which you, you thought you would be able to. And you look at our planet and we've we've had these serious environmental but also social problems brewing for decades now. And, and those are all the consequences of excessive human pressure on the environment, but also excessive you know, numbers in our societies, we have this magical belief that no matter how many people you throw into a city, the city would just thrive and give them all good life and opportunities and everything would be fine. And this is just magical <laughs> thinking. If you really think rationally about it, it can't be true of anything else in the world. Why would it be true of people? You know, we're special, yes, but we're still living in the real world. 
So I, I do think we're already living in an overpopulated world. And in terms of what you expect, if you run this, we don't know exactly where this is going to go, but we can make some sort of probabilistic assessments about the future, right? It looks very likely that we're going to have very serious global warming in coming decades. There's is quite likely to reduce our ability to cultivate the ground and get food out of it, to feed what will be then a considerably larger number of people than there are now. So the production that we have now seems likely to be depressed in future, whilst the number of people whose bellies need to be filled will be higher. Uh, Water is uh, one of the main uh, constraints here, uh, not just for agriculture, 75% of the water that humans take from the world just goes for irrigation, not, not even for the rest of things that we use water for, including industry, uh, commerce and, and domestic use, you know, just brushing your teeth, cooking, you know, showering, laundry, all those things are only 25% that didn't go into irrigation. But the UN estimates that like 80% of jobs worldwide depend on a steady supply of water. Mm -hmm. And if water has run out, not just because there are lots of people more than, you know, and that's a separate problem from climate change. And we can get back to that. But separately from overdrawn water supplies that just end up dry. If, if water just becomes more erratic because, you know, precipitation changes and sometimes you have a flood, sometimes you have you know uh, two years without any rain there could be economic and social chaos as you know just the economy whatever model of economic system we have running at any one time which i hope will not be the model we have now but even any model that you can imagine it's difficult to think of one that can be so resilient that businesses may have to shut down for maybe a year at a time and presumably lay people off and things will be okay. Like where, where are people's livelihoods going to come from? And then you have uh, an enormous number of people in the world, they'll be larger and larger over, over the years, who in past uh, decades would have fallen back on the land if they could not find jobs, right? Because there are people living in precarious situations uh, in Latin America, Asia, uh, Africa, less so in, in, in North America and Europe partly because there's no land to be had, but also because there are wealthier areas of the world. Uh, so if, if, you, if you're a, a person without means living in rural Africa or rural Brazil, for example, and you cannot get a job, the usual strategy would have been to go farm the little bit of land that you have mm -hmm. and, and just wait it out until you find something. But the land has all been taken up now, and what, whatever land hasn't been taken up is very marginal so not very productive or it's still like holding you know a little bit of wildlife alive <laughs> so either it's not going to be very good for agriculture and people are going to really struggle to get a livelihood out of it or or it's going to keep whatever remains of wildlife and whatever buffer there is for for climate change still going so you have this enormous number of people that will be even more vulnerable than they are now. Uh, many of them have depended in the past on, and this is not nice, but it's just the reality of the world, on hunting uh, wildlife, on deforestation activities, just basically um, taking from the natural world. And that pool of <laughs> natural resources is dwindling into nothing. Mm -hmm. And whatever views we have on whether they should have been doing that, the reality is that they were, and 
at some point there there won't be anything. It's already a problem, for example, in Asia that forests have become ghost forests, right? You can't find vertebrates larger than a mouse in, in the forest anymore. And people that were using forest resources for, um, you know, for their own diet and for selling for a bit of money, we'll find there is nothing now. So you can't get a job. You can't hunt animals for whatever purpose that you had. You can't grow food from the land because it's, it's been subpartitioned into tiny plots or, it's, you know, whatever hasn't been taken yet is very horrible. You know, it's not a slope and it's very rocky or the soil is rubbish. Where are these people going to go? Mm-hmm. Who is going to take them in? Who is going to look after them? We already have, uh, you know, a massive uh, pressure of people just trying to move because they can't get anything where they are. And the global system is not doing too well. And that's relative to the potential numbers of people in in the decades that are to come. And we're not talking a distant future. We're talking 30, 50 years from now when you, Thomas, will still be alive and Mm -hmm. people in your generation will still be alive. Right? We're talking about potential billions of people. Where are they going to go? And and where is our compassion in allowing all this risk to build up without without particularly good reasons. You know, these this risks are enormous. These are risks of people living entire lives of desperation and fear. And we're saying, well, you know, if it happens, it happens, or we'll figure something out. I don't, I don't think those are appropriate responses. Mm-hmm. And so, so we have this uh, sort of series of metrics that you're looking at, like things like topsoil, things like water availability, things like the amount of arable land per person. And- well, you could look, for example, at uh, the situation for young people in terms of finding jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has deteriorated noticeably over the last few decades. It's noticeable uh, for people that are keeping an eye on things, but perhaps not people living in that world because, you know, if you're a young person today, you won't necessarily know that 20 years ago at your age, you would have a well-paying job and a mortgage and, you know, be living in in relative uh, stability financially. Whereas uh, someone in their 20s today is probably, you know, in in Europe and in much of uh, the industrialized world is probably looking at several years of unpaid or very badly paid work before they can get any semblance of a real job. And that's the case even if they're really quite overqualified. Mm-hmm. So they, they, there's this tax on young people where they spend many more years in education without earning and then they come out and are expected to maybe work for several more years for free or for next to nothing. Whereas in previous generations, they would have had a, a decent job waiting for them. If you had a degree, you get you know a good job. Now, even a master's degree might not get you a good job. And and people without degrees are exposed to, you know, zero-hour contracts and all sorts of brutal degradations for for someone who's young and doesn't have financial resources. And even older people, you know, are, are finding ever harder to just make a living. And that's pretty much what you'd expect if you keep throwing more people into a system. You know, eventually... Uh, a point will come when people start noticing that labor is not very valuable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so framing this in a sort of um, in terms of these social problems that you brought up, and in terms of this existential risks thing as well, there's something that people like to say about uh, climate change, which, as I'm sure you'll agree, is is intimately linked to this uh, uh, population crisis. Is that it is an exacerbator in terms of the way that it actually 
while while it, it may be partially a risk in in and of itself, it also exacerbates the risks for other things like conflict, um, political instability within countries, yeah. uh, the social problems that you have within countries, uh, demographic transition problems, and all all kinds of things like that. Um, and everything gets ratcheted up by the fact that you have this uh, pressure on resources from population as well. So that's I right. think so that's uh, I think that what you're describing is a threat multiplier, which is mm-hmm. the term often used for climate change, and that is very much applicable to population on two counts. One of them is that you're putting more pressure on whatever it is that was already under pressure. So whatever it is, is it a struggling uh, economy that, you know, is not really providing jobs for everyone? Add more people looking for jobs, things are not going to get better. Or is, is it the fact that you have a struggle to lower carbon emissions and you just increase the number of emitters? That's not going to help matters. But there's the other angle that's quite unique to population, and that's that you are putting more people in harm's way. Mm-hmm. And and that is another threat multiplier. You know, it's not just making the threat worse; it's increasing the number of potential victims. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about things from this philosophical point of view, where the kind of thing that you might imagine we're trying to minimise is, I guess, the integral of human suffering over all humans over all time. Well, having a world with more suffering in uh, increases that, and having a world with more people in increases that, as well as having a world that has um, negative conditions for a longer time as well. That's right. I, I mean, I I don't partake in the utilitarian, mm-hmm. uh, total utilitarian perspective that is very popular amongst uh, exist- existentialist scholars. For I, I just I don't find it particularly plausible, but it just seems really uncontroversial that if if you can avoid having a large number of people have terrible lives, or if you can avoid a risk of really terrible lives you ought to act on it unless there's a very, very good reason not to. And, it, you know, if you, if, you, if you have that information, just the fact that there's uncertainty about it, because whenever you look in the future, you can never know for sure what's going to happen. That's not ex- an excuse not to act. Mm-hmm. It's the classic thing we talk about a lot in climate change, where people say, you know, if you're driving on a foggy cliff, you still slam on the brakes just because there's uncertainty and there might not be a cliffside near to you. It doesn't make it any less wise a course of action to you know, change what you do. So yeah. I think um, bringing on to the sort of historical aspect of this, um, when we did our episode, I talked about Malthus, who wrote in the 1790s, just to remind people, um, his essay on the principle of population. And he wrote, uh, the power of population is so superior to the power of Earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. Should plagues and wars fail, gigantic inevitable famine stalks in the rear and with one mighty blow levels the population with the food of the world. And obviously that was in the 1790s and there have been lots of theorists who've uh, you know, developed and changed these ideas since. There was Paul Ehrlich in the 1960s with the population bomb who sort of, I think, brought this back into the public uh, eye a little bit more, although I haven't, I admit I haven't read anything that he's written. Um, but they were both effectively arguing that the population growth was outstripping the Earth's ability to sustain people. And they both predicted in fairly short order that there might be widespread famines that would result from this. But owing in part to uh, technological agricultural advances, uh, neither prediction did come true on the timescales that they were talking about. So how do you view the history of writing and thinking about population and overpopulation? You know, it can be with reference to those two figures, but of course there might be plenty of others that you know about that you think are important to mention. And uh, can we learn anything from their predictions or the way that they frame them philosophically, morally? 
I think the first lesson is don't try to put dates on predictions. Yeah. Because uh, there's inherently fraud. If, if you're right, no one is going to say, oh, thank you. And <laughs> if you're wrong, people will say, you know nothing. So there's absolutely nothing to be gained from it. Um, yeah, people in AI will agree with you on that, I think. Yeah, exactly. When you're talking about risks, first of all, you have to remember that humans are terrible in thinking about risks. We are terrible. You know, we're playing into an area where human cognition is least developed we struggle to think in prob- probabilistic ways uh, we like we really want a definitive answer which you can never give when it's about the future and when there are various possible outcomes of you know different possibilities we just don't know what to make of it and we ignore the ones that are lower probabilities if they were zero you know if 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 there's a risk of something bad happening, we'll think, well, but it probably won't happen to me because we're inherently optimistic. There are all sorts of biases going into that. But going back to Malthus and, and uh, like one point to make is that people really underestimate how much um, common sense there was into what um, Malthus said. And what they, what they think is, well, if I can disprove Malthus, therefore, there is no overpopulation, which is poppycock. You could mm-hmm. pick some author from, you know, you could pick Arrhenius from the 1800s who wrote about the precursors of, you know, climate science and say, I will disprove one of his ideas. Therefore, there's no climate change. It's like, you've disproven nothing. <laughs> you've just disagreed with an author from 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Malthus was not terribly... Uh, elegant writer so to an extent people can read whatever they want into what he wrote but his basic contention is undeniable the power of animals and plants and and humans to multiply vastly exceeds the capacity of the environment to keep up the environment will not keep up right the environment is, is, is indifferent to us but we can try to cultivate more land and you know make more efficient choices about how we use resources, but those can never really move at the pace at which we can potentially multiply our numbers. We, you know, we can double our population within 25 years very easily. And it's not all easy to double food production in 25 years, nor to keep doing that every 25 years, ad infinitum. None of those things are easy, if at all possible. And eventually, eventually there's just no no further you can go because ultimately there's only so much that the biology of earth life will allow you <laughs> to do. And there's, there's only so much that the resources in the land, you know, provide you with. There's only so much you can do. Whereas animals and plants and humans, humans are animals as well. You know, un- un- unless you stop us uh, or unless we humans exercise restraint, which was Martha's main contention, we will over, overrun the resources available to us. And, and but that has not actually been questionable in the history of humankind. People have known that that's something we can and do, that, you know, we over multiply until, until times of plenty have become times of want. And then we have to migrate and have, you know, a fight with whatever, whatever persons we find in lands that we want for ourselves or fight amongst ourselves where we are, or just suffer, you know, malnutrition, or, you know, be victimized by some sort of natural catastrophe because we're living in, you know, very precarious conditions. So those things have been part of the human consciousness for thousands of years. 
and they're recording texts from antiquity, they're recording texts from Middle Ages and texts from every time we've existed, all the way to Malthus. Malthus didn't really say anything particularly new. You know, some of some of the things that he said had been said by other people a few decades before him. It's just that he really sees a particular moment in time, and, and I guess because he put everything so concisely and in a very provocative essay that was at the time intended to contradict this really wildly optimistic utopians who were saying, you know, humans are infinitely perfectible. We can, there's nothing you can not do once we put our minds to it. And if you just abolish government and give everyone absolute freedom, it's like some anarchist view of the world. It's not even like small government. It's like no government. We will have an amazing world because every one of us is innately an angel. Basically, we, we're motivated by charity and benevolence towards our fellow human beings and everything's going to be awesome. And Malthus came in and said, uh, what are you smoking? Right? <laughs> we are not actually angels. Uh, and what you can see when you look around is that we are not very prudent. You know, as, as soon as there's some sort of discovery of new resources or the climate improves and we can get you know, more productivity. Do we use that boon to improve everyone's lives and have a fairer society? No, we just live as though there was no tomorrow. We multiply our numbers until there are, again, too few resources. We just burn through opportunity. And then uh, perhaps farm owners and industry capitalists, you know, will have benefited because they had cheap labor, but the working class is even worse off than they were before. So that, that was a very powerful insight. His main argument was not about apocalyptic endings. He didn't think there was an apocalyptic ending looming in the future. He thought the checks of overpopulation had been happening to us throughout time. At all times in history, there was some sort of cycle of, you know, good times and bad times. But what he thought is like, we can't really improve the lot of humanity as a whole unless we get a hold of our numbers and, you know, use any extra resources that we have to improve people's lives rather than multiply the number of lives. And I mean, those are all sensible things to say. <laughs> Who would disagree with that? But apparently many, because they said, well, no, we don't have to worry. Resources are infinite. Technology will solve any non-infinite resources and humans are awesome. And these are all very nice things to hear. And a lot of people still believe them today. But what, what that is, is like, I'd rather not look at the real world I, I'd rather just take a lot of risk and commit to this ideal in my head. And if it doesn't pan out well, you know, it was it was nice thinking about it. And yeah, maybe maybe you know we don't have to worry because maybe within a few years someone will figure out some amazing solution to climate change or another amazing solution to topsoil degradation. Yet another solution to uh, groundwater depletion. You know, there are many, many enormous technical hacks that would need to be invented within a few, a few years for, for there to be no trouble for, to do with our numbers more than we already have. Uh, but maybe that won't happen. Or maybe that won't happen in time. Or maybe they will come up with a solution, but it, it just won't be implemented for, you know, political reasons. Whatever. There are so many moving parts here. And optimism is all 
nice enough, but not when you're basically taking enormous risks with other people's lives and they don't have a say on those risks. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't make me think that the utopian and now uh, techno-optimist view is ethically sound. <laughs> so I, I would say, if I can be a bit provocative, that while Malthus was talking about this kind of moralistic utopia, uh, you sort of view people who are talking about population in, in the modern day as kind of uh, sceptical of the techno-utopian view, which I think people don't realise how deeply it is embedded in the assumptions that all of our sort of global governments and governing systems are making about how all kinds of issues like climate change and like uh, social problems will be solved just by, you know, application of more technology in one way or another, um, how deeply it's embedded into the assumptions that people are making at the moment. Um, so I think f for sure there is a place for people who are sceptical that techno-optimism is going to work out because, of course, it doesn't always work out and you cannot predict the rate of uh, growth of technology and you can't figure out where things will saturate either, I suppose. Um, so moving on from framing the problem, I guess, to attempting to find ways to fix it, which I think in some ways is even more difficult to talk about, because even if you get uh, agreement amongst a group of people that, um, you know, the population should be reduced, I think sometimes, or, you know, the population should be stabilised or whatever it is, I think people can struggle to talk about these issues because of what they think that that then implies. So I have a friend who I hope won't mind being referenced anonymously, probably doesn't listen, who insists that people in the UK should be forced to take a test to prove that they'll be good parents before they can be allowed to have children. And I think this idea always struck me as very kind of unpleasant and uh, other people around because I think we have a sense of uh, an infringement of reproductive rights that we don't want and that they should be considered amongst human rights and you don't need to be a keen skier to see a slippery slope in... in a policy like that. Um, but your research so far, I think, is specifically focused on uh, antinatalist policies that have been implemented around the world, those that are attempting to incentivize population control. And I think, you know, I mentioned this to my brother before the interview, and he said, I thought of the one child policy in China, and that was what I thought of as well. But hopefully, uh, you'll know the sort of full scope of things that have been implemented, and we'll know more about that than, than we do. But it would be great if you could give us an overview of some of the different types of policy that have been enacted with population in mind, sort of how they were intended to work and how you think they have worked. Okay, so there are two main uh, meta-types of uh, antinatalist policy, as, as I would categorize them. So one type is about the wrongness of bringing life into the world that you have no good reason to think you're able to look after or that the world is able to look after. So that's about the hypothetical child that you bring up. And that's what your anonymous friend is going uh, about. Mm -hmm. And the separate question is how, how would a well-governed society uh, fairly apportion procreative liberties so that the the common good is secured and and you don't have overpopulation basically. So that's the antinatalist population policy side of things. I'll get back to that uh, momentarily. That is the one that comprises the uh, Chinese one-child policy. Going back to the first type, which is oriented towards don't do a wrong thing in terms of playing with human life as if it's nothing, right? So there's this natural and very uh, common impulse that telling someone you're not fit to be a parent feels wrong. And I can totally get that because you're basically saying, don't use your body in a particular way that you want to use it. And that feels like 
you know, it's none of your business what I do with my body is my body. And as a woman, the idea that someone would tell me, you know, you must report to your GP to have some long-acting contraception uh, put in you. I was like, hell no. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what is this? That those are all very natural and understandable impulses. But we are not very rational as a species when it comes to thinking about um, children and hypothetical children. We are systematically bad at it. All right. So let, let me let me just run a little thought experiment with you, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Say I live uh, as a homeless person and I have a drug addiction problem and I walk into a cat shelter and say, I would like to adopt a kitty for company. They would tell me, sorry, no, right? And I would walk away empty-handed. Now say, say, okay, well, I can at least have a human baby. So I become pregnant. I, I think your impulse there is to say, well, and that is your right. Now imagine, Thomas, that rather than becoming pregnant, I go to a, an adoption agency and say, please, could I have a baby or a child of any age I would like to adopt? And I'm still living in the same circumstances I've just described. And, you know, it could be that life has been terribly unjust to me and people have treated me very badly and abused me. Be that as it may, that's the life in which this child that I either, either create or adopt will have. Now, do you think adoption agency uh, would be entitled to say, no, sorry, or do you think that my right to adopt a child should be respected? Because if I have the right to create a child, surely I should have the right to adopt one. What, is, what does your instinct tell you? Oh, absolutely. I agree with you that the adoption agency would probably refuse such a request. I don't know what the law is. Yeah, on, well, you but know, know what it is. They have, they have exactly. all kinds of, uh, you know, restrictions and I, I, on this kind I don't of thing. find that anyone has any hesitation saying, well, the answer should be no. <laughs> but if you make the child is different. So what we do is we think about children that we make as property. We don't think of them as human beings. We think of them as the property of the people who made them. And basically we dehumanize these children and also in our heads, and they don't exist until we make them, right? But in our heads, we make a distinction between the children that one would manufacture property and the children that one would adopt. They are real people. Even if they don't exist yet, even if they're, you know, hypotheticals, we, we, we can tell a difference. Like, you see, you don't want to take an existing child and put them in a situation of known danger. But a child that doesn't exist yet, oh, sure, do whatever you want with it, which is not right. And, and it's just part of our systematically erroneous way of thinking about parenthood. One of the complications here is that traditionally and over the greater part of human history, children have literally been the property of their parents. So that is, you know, ingrained culturally into people's minds. And it it still comes out, you know, when people demand that they decide, you know, whether their child needs to be vaccinated or whether the child should get an education or not. You know, it's my child. I decide, you know, it doesn't matter what the interests of the child are. It's my child. It's still, it's like property, right? Mm -hmm. But if if there were an existing child in the world, you feel that that is wrong. Don't, Don't do that to that child. I don't, you know, I don't want to disrespect your interests and rights, but I also want to respect the interests and rights of that child. 
But when it comes to one that we've manufactured, it's like, yeah, out the window. doesn't matter. I, mean, like, I, I like, agree with you completely yeah. from, from a consequentialist point of view that there shouldn't be a distinction between putting a child that already exists into the hands of, uh, you know, into a, into a bad situation versus creating a child that is born into a bad situation. But I do think there is a distinction between the scenarios in the sense that in one case... I mean, maybe it's just our human bias towards, like, laissez-faire, let things be, unless you have a good reason to explain mm-hmm. otherwise. But I think in one case, you have to imbue an authority with the power to um, decide who can and can't procreate or, or who can take children. And you're right, it is, it is in a sense, the property issue. You already have, you mm-hmm. know, a, an entire system designed to take children away from parents that are unable to care for them whether that's right or wrong. So there was a study from, I think it was Manchester University from a few years ago, then I guess 2014, and they um, looked at the average gap in time between um, a young woman appearing in court to have a child removed from her. So these were generally um, disadvantaged young single women with children mm-hmm. who um, were having children taken away due to neglect or abuse. So this is not about passing judgment on the young mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, This is about thinking, how are we as a society thinking about children, about human life and procreation generally, right? What they found is that the average gap between a woman having a child taken away because she had neglected or abused that child and she appearing in court again with a new child she had made, brand new, to be taken away again because she had abused or neglected that child. It was like 17 months mm-hmm. on average. So it was quite predictable that any, you know, in the near future, any f- further children that those young women had would be neglected and abused. But what did the authorities do? Sit back, wait until it happens, and then you go in and take it after the child's been harmed. And one of the strongest predictors for a terrible life for a child is to be taken into care, right? It's second only to being neglected and abused at home. It, it's, it's a close second, right? It is a predictor of all series of bad outcomes for children to be taken into care and not be raised by, by their own parents. Of course, if you leave children in a situation with danger, it's even worse. But, but the point is, those children did not need to be born. They were not bringing you know, happiness to their mothers. Their mothers were not in condition in a condition to have, you know, a healthy parenting experience. And they were predictably coming into danger. Mm-hmm. And so from, from it, your it perspective, would just let you, it happen. You you would support almost as a minimum uh people who've already uh had children taken into care. Um I mean what what happens to those people if you're saying that it's worth preventing them from having children? If we were consistent morally and thought mm-hmm. that, you know, harm to children is a bad thing and we don't want it to happen, if we can avoid it, we should do it. And if we were really realistic about comparing harms, because that's what you need to do when you're looking at a moral conflict. And whenever you're trying to prevent harm to others, you are, or, or just someone doing something wrong, even if there's no one to harm that you can identify. Because when, when you're talking about hypothetical people, you can't really talk about harm to others, but you still you can still talk about someone doing something wrong. You have to compare the harms. You have to compare, compare you know, 
the bad things that you have and one will be greater than the other that's how you go about it but what we do is just like don't even look don't compare we just say well you know limiting people's freedoms is bad yes but we we do it all the time it's just part of living in society that you have to limit people's freedoms in a whole diversity of ways just so that we can, we can live with each other without hurting each other without driving each other mad and also so the society can function and provide good outcomes for everyone Right. So in this case where you it's predictable and that child is going to come into danger and you would not let the person adopt, you wouldn't let the person take take a cat or dog home from a shelter. Why are we letting them create a new child? Yes. Telling this person, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go on long term acting, you know, long acting contraception will be a harm because it's never nice to tell someone what to do with their own bodies. But the harm is smaller than having a whole lifetime of suffering for a child that could be very easily traumatized by, by being brought into the world in, under such conditions. It's just no comparison. In, in some ways, this reminds me of there was a recent study that I'm sure you saw written up in a lot of places, and I wrote it up myself for Singularity Hub, which is why I mentioned it, um, about the moral machine and the self-driving car issue. And <laughs> You know, you pre- you're presented with a lot of trolley problem type dilemmas. Does the car crash into X group of people, or does the car crash into Y group of people? And the reason why they posed this study and noted the sort of cultural differences that come in across different countries was because they felt that you needed something to point to in establishing a moral framework for the car. And I think that if you had, if you pose this question, the question that you posed to me, to say uh, as almost a referendum, although we might not want to get into that, but um, as a referendum <laughs> to the people in the, this country and in other countries, I think you would probably find that there was support for uh, infringing in some way uh, the the woman's freedom to have uh, additional children if she'd already shown herself to be uh, neglectful in the past. But I think it's 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 one of those issues where the the morality is is so tangled. You almost need some arbitration in there. Um, yeah, some... no, I, I think you're right. Uh, in my, my personal experience, when people discover what it is that I do for, you know, my academic pursuits, they're very ready to confess to me their deepest and darkest uh, convictions. You know, <laughs> a common one that comes out is, you know, some people really should not be permitted to have children. That's a very common one. Or, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to just have enormous families, not in the world that we live in today. But in, in relation to what you're saying, like, if there were some sort of referendum mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh, i i think the i'm not necessarily action, saying referendum no, is always I, the way I agree, to solve a problem <laughs> <laughs> i agree so um if one were to adopt some sort of public reason approach and saying the public should decide this i i think you have to go through a deliberative democracy approach where you you give uh you give the voter or or the the person that you're asking the question a little bit of time to think think it through, not get their immediate instinctive response. So if, if it was Kahneman here, he'd say, you know, engage system two, don't let system one answer, don't, not the fast and dirty mm-hmm. answer. Thinking fast and slow, yeah. That's right. So the instinctive response would be the visceral reaction, oh, we shouldn't tell people what to do with their bodies, right? But if you prompt people to think about it, really? Are you, com- like, compare the harms here? Like, are you really saying that it's worse to tell someone in your current circumstances, and I'm sorry for, you know, all the bad things that are going on in your life, but in your current circumstances, it's not okay for you to, to have a child. That is a worse bad than letting a baby go home with someone that you have very good reason to think will abuse them or neglect them, and then they will spend 
a lifetime in care and you know the the system for care as well is overstretched and you don't even know what kind of care that child will have it could even be worse than what's already available which we know correlates very highly with terrible outcomes are you saying that that harm to that you know that that situation the wrongness of the situation is not us wrong as telling someone sorry you're gonna have to use long-acting birth control until your life is on a better footing i think most people if they had if they were prompted to think about it they would say no actually yes uh we should we should do that we should we should have some minimum standard that you have to meet before you know as a responsible citizen you would bring some new citizens into the world because that's the wrong thing to do to create you know new people in a situation that there's clear danger to them and also a, a cost to everybody else in society so that is wrong we shouldn't do that and as a matter of, of you know responsible citizenship we should ask some people that you know Maybe that their circumstances are not their fault, but it's it's not anybody else's fault either that you know the the system is creaking or that generally children spend spending any time in the system will have terrible lives or it's not the child that would be his fault either. So you know talking about blame and fault is not particularly productive. It's more about comparing bads and you know one is bad but you also know the other is also bad and i think most people would come with the well i think is the right answer if if they were prompted to think about and reflect Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i just think that it's certainly part of the reason why i mean you must get this all the times researching what you research uh that people do have this instinctive response that then perhaps is more difficult to logically explain and justify moving back onto the other half of the question i ask really long questions which means that that's okay <laughs> that's uh, that, that's that's definitely my fault if we're talking about blame and fault but um i asked about uh the one child policy in china and sort of what other uh policies focused yeah. on population there are that have um been used throughout the world and sort of how they were intended to work and how you think they've worked and i just thought if there was uh, any sort of overview of that that you would give that people sure. might not know about Right, so what we can do is like I'll, I'll start with a synthetic overview of the kinds of things that one could do, yes. and they can be combined amongst themselves in in any one particular policy. But the way I would structure this list of things you could do is start with the least intrusive, the least uh, controversial ones, all the way through to the most controversial ones. So the easiest ones are. Just make birth control available. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's there, you know, is to have a clinic. And if, if people would like to have birth control, they can have it. It's available because people can talk all they like about, you know, if people want a smaller family, they'll have it. It's not the case that people can magically control their fertility. They do need birth control. And throughout human history, it's been a struggle, right? People have long wanted to have um control over their fertility and it's it's not something that we can do without um, technology and that is one of the real triumphs of technology that we do have highly reliable uh, birth control today it's quite cheap but you know we have not deployed it that's just another example of how you can have a technological solution you can still fail because we don't use it right so just making birth control available uncontroversial mostly um Maybe not in the US, but <laughs> mostly <laughs> controversial. Um, another one is uh, 
you make birth control available and you encourage people to use it by saying it's a good idea or just educate the public that, you know, birth control is available. It can allow you to plan your family rather than just leave it to, you know, destiny. So there's that education element that tends to foster a greater use of, of, of birth control. Another one is like quite indirect measures where you, um, for example, put more money into um, education, uh, just keeping children longer in school um, and uh, improving the uh, situation of women in any particular society tends to tends to have an effect on fertility because, for one, if you're in school, you're less likely to um, be getting married and having children very early. And if you do get married very early and have children, you're probably going to have very many children because teenagers are very fertile and also very vulnerable and much less uh, likely to have any power in their relationship and, and say no thanks. Um, so many, many good reasons for um, improving investment in education and the position of women uh, in terms of social reasons and, and questions of justice, but it tends to have an effect on facility. It's not an enormous effect, but it does have, on average, some effect. And that's quite indirect. Um, you could, for example, pass a law setting a minimum age for marriage. And uh, again, uncontroversial, it is a limitation, a limitation on freedom, if you think about it, right? It's just it's so well uh, established that people don't think about it but it is it's saying you have to be of a certain age also you can only marry one right mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's, sure. it's a limitation of freedom um they can do that as well so now moving a little bit into the more controversial territory there are the so i mentioned earlier talking about family planning and everything um those by and large are not particularly controversial but where it starts being a bit more controversial is what we call ideational work is where you're you're trying to change people's attitudes towards um, uh, procreation and, and, and family size uh, in much of the world. It's still the case that um, you can make uh, family planning available. You can educate people. They'll still have a, a larger family because that's what is normal and that's what everybody else is doing and you don't want to be the freak, right? So changing those attitudes can, can appear a bit more sinister, I guess, but what people don't realize is that they like to criticize any sort of effort to change people's behavior in a you know, way that helps the community and helps themselves. They, they see that as sinister, but when corporations do it for marketing purposes, it's apparently fine. <laughs> mm, yeah. so, so we are manipulated all the time into buying things we don't need. We're pressured uh, by our kin and our friends to perhaps do things that we don't necessarily want and people living in patriarchal and religious societies um, often feel very explicit pressure to get married young and have lots of children all right so changing those external pressures that are coming in to to affect people's um, ideas of what they want to do in terms of, of family size and and procreation that can be very effective and and free people to actually do what they actually want to do rather than what they've been told they should want right but to some extent it would also help people to be more responsible citizens if, if people were aware that overpopulation was a problem and that having as many children as their parents did or their grandparents did is is just no longer um 
going to work for the planet. So, um, so if I could just jump in here, yeah. this this idea of changing attitudes um, in the hierarchy, you've sort of talked about two things, I guess. One is talking about overpopulation as a problem and suggesting to people that having fewer children might be good for the planet and good for society in general. Yeah. But there's also this idea of removing the influences that are... The pronatalist influences, yeah. yeah. that are trending towards uh, overpopulation. I mean... I know this is obviously the work of, or it should be the work of many people, but could you give me some examples of sort of specific uh, actions uh, that people might take, policies that people might take that would move in either of those directions? Yeah, so I don't have uh, examples of the um, ethical reproduction. uh, I'm not aware of anyone basically raising awareness of overpopulation and encouraging people to ponder this as they make their decisions even though that is a is premised in the current version of the human right to procreate that you have to be you know responsible when you exercise your right to procreate and maybe how are you going to even be responsible if you don't know <laughs> what's going on in the world and what the true import of your decisions is but leaving that aside in relation to ideational uh work there's this organization called the Population Media Center. They're based in the U.S. and they've they've had quite significant successes uh, in changing people's attitudes, not just about family size, but about other harmful ways of thinking, like um, child marriage, for example, or domestic violence. But what they have done um, is basically create attractive uh, stories, so it's not in your face, you know, like the heroine decides to rebel against social expectations that she would uh, get married at 16 and start having babies straight away. And she tells her family, I, you know, I actually would like to uh, be an engineer. Uh, so I, I will stay in school. And then she faces terrible odds and comes out victorious and, and people get really invested in the story because, you know, it's not, it's not didactic. It's not in your face. And, you know, and they start thinking, oh, you know, maybe if girls didn't get married so early, they could maybe go on to do different things rather than just being mothers and have lots of babies. So they've done this kind of edutainment, uh, which is a mixture of education and entertainment as via radio uh, soap operas and TV soap operas. In They've done it in the US. They've done it in um, Nepal, India. Ethiopia, I think Rwanda, they've done in many places around the world. So they have people um, in those countries that will basically come up with stories and, and be their consultants and they'll, you know, come up. It's, it's all about boring. You know, the, the governments are involved and they do this and they've been able to measure uh, people's responses and changes in behavior. So they've been quite successful. But uh, they've told me that one of the, one of the experiences that, initiated this was this quite accidental observation by uh, a researcher about um, the impact of soap operas in Brazil. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm from Brazil originally. Uh, and my mother's generation um, was, you know, very fertile, so to speak. My mother's one of nine. And within my mother's family, you can see the precipitous fall in, in family sizes in Brazil. And that preceded any sort of improvement in economic indicators or education, it preceded all those things that people keep saying, oh, we must do that first. It, none of that happened first. You know, it, it, it was people's attitudes that changed, really. That's the easiest explanation. And really the, the explanation that best fits the facts. And what was happening at the time was uh, soap operas are very popular in Brazil. 
and the main network that prepared, uh, you know, that broadcast the, the soap operas and, and produced them um, accidentally, right? It was not out of design, at least not initially. Their plots featured small families <laughs> mm-hmm. because it was it was for narrative expediency, right? Yeah, it was, it's easier to keep track of three or four kids rather than exactly. Ten. And also, you you can get more families plotting against each other, blah blah blah, rather than you know if mm-hmm. you have one family with nine kids, that's it. And another family of nine kids, you're probably going to end your story. There is like no one else in this world rather than these two families. But if you have lots of small families and, you know, people doing things. So it, that was, again, not in your face. That was just, you know, portraying an alternative way of being. And somehow, you know, people just thought, oh, you know, I, that's what normal looks like. <laughs> normal looks like initially three and then two and now one kid. You know, it was pretty painless and and Mm. really effective. And it was just changing attitudes. People started thinking, you know, I could do so many more things if I had uh, a smaller number of children and I could provide a much better life for them. And, and, yeah, people people just moved towards a smaller family size just by changing attitudes. And, and, I mean, that that might not work everywhere, but Mm. it works in many places. Right, so that was the ideational, yes, the ideational element of it. Um, Shall I move on to the other ones? Yes, and then we sort of, so moving down towards the uh, more controversial side of things. I mean, as as you said, we've talked about the one-child policy already, but I guess eventually you have, you know, legislation. I haven't even got close to the one-child policy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, let's let's keep let's keep going. Right, so um, so just to tell you what the next steps are so uh, as i categorize them one of them is positive incentives in terms of yeah making different choices more attractive the next one after this is negative incentives is you know making the choice of a a larger family less attractive Mm -hmm. and then after that is like legally requiring people to not do it it's just you know prohibited and after this then you have like forcible you know compulsion where, you know, just basically hold people down and, and you know, give them birth control. I, I'm not familiar with any policy that went all the way there. But if one were thinking of the spectrum, that's yes, where it ends, yes. right? So people normally think the one-child policy is right there. It's people being, you know, grabbed off the streets and being forced to, to have contraception. The Chinese policy, as I understand it, it's a mixture of negative and positive incentives, actually. Uh, it did have an element of, of legal compulsion, but it was, again, based on, on fines. You know, it's not like you're going to go to jail mm-hmm. if you uh, had more children than uh, you did. But also because in reality, most policies of any kind would be a, a combination of various things. So that policy was not just uh, financial incentives and incentives, but quite a lot of um, ideational work. So, so they would talk to people and say, oh, actually, that is one example of overpopulation, although they were not talking about the world, they were talking about their own community. Um, they would talk, you know, we're fearful that we are going to have a serious food production problem if our population keeps growing. Everyone needs to contribute, you know, to, to this effort. So everyone needs to have fewer children. And my understanding is that by and large, the, the policy is not controversial in China. I mean, it's now being discontinued and turning to a 
modified version with various complexities, but leaving that aside, whenever I've met people from China, they kind of roll their eyes. Oh, everyone wants to ask about the on-child policy. It's just what we do. It's not a big deal. Also, right, reading about it, it doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to have been particularly traumatic for uh, Chinese society. But remember, this is a very hierarchical society, so it work there might not work elsewhere. And what I thought was very interesting, some of the comments from people that were interviewed for uh, some research about the acceptance of the Chinese one-child policy was that they felt, I will do this if I can have confidence that everybody else is doing it as well, that I'm not just being some patsy. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that is an often neglected factor uh, when people talk about solutions to overconsumption and, you know, uh, overpopulation. It's the collective action problem that we see the in The collective action problem, always. exactly. Yes. It's often unfair to ask people to forego something that they would prefer to do without giving them any sort of assurance that everybody else is doing it too, mm-hmm. right? So what may be construed as coercion. Well, of course, coercion, the law is coercive. Everything that we do under the law is, you know, we're doing it under some element of coercion. But by and large, if we endorse the law, we don't feel that we're being coerced. And that's what they did in China. People endorsed the law. And having some sort of general rule applying across the board, like we're all doing this, ensured fairness. Because otherwise, first, it's not going to work. And secondly, the people that do contribute and forego the the wishes that they had are being treated unfairly because you know <laughs> they're being the patsies they're being the mugs and other people are just like doing nothing and nothing happens to them you know there's no consequences and the whole thing like everyone suffers in the end but so that was the Chinese one child policy another factor to bear in mind when thinking about you know this combination of features so I've seen this in uh, talks from experts <laughs> on the topic and I was thinking hmm <laughs> how easy it is to tell, you know, some sort of attractive story about how China are villains, right? So they'll say, mm-hmm. look at China, you know, family size in China had started to drop before they introduced the one-child policy. And you look at the countries near China, they did not have the one-child policy and they had a, a nearly identical fall in fertility. They had nearly identical policies <laughs> in reality. You look at countries surrounding China, like South Korea, uh, you know, Vietnam and uh, Taiwan, I guess. China would say Taiwan is China, but, you know. Yeah, uh, let's Japan. not get into that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Japan, you know, they all had uh, a mixture of incentives and disincentives to bring down fertility rates. It was just not labeled the one-child policy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, yes, they also had uh, sharp uh, drops in fertility but they also had slightly different societies and it's not terribly fair to say what worked in one place wouldn't necessarily work in another because you know, for example, that if you try to do something that might work here in the UK, like, for example, having sensible gun legislation and you try to do that in your ass, you're going to say, you're crazy, get out of here, right? Mm-hmm. You have to take account You have to be sensitive of, to these cultural differences exactly, between to, countries. To, to the cultural texture of the place. Uh, it's very easy for people to demonize uh, the Chinese one-child policy. And there are horror stories. Uh, as, as I think in any aspect of the Chinese administration, there are horror stories, as it happens also the one-child policy, because there's an enormous bureaucracy and there will be local 
you know, government agents just going off on their own and doing all sorts of horrible things to people. That's also true of the one-child policy, but the structure of the policy as a whole, as I understand it, was incentives and incentives and also bringing people on board and just explaining why the policy was in place and, and, you know, building public support for it. And countries around China had slightly different mixes of, of these characteristics. So another thing that I think is often neglected about the one-child policy is that it had all sorts of exceptions that were quite enlightened, you know, like it didn't apply to the, I don't know how to pronounce it, Uyghur, you know, yeah. yeah, so they had like six children that they could have, and people in the countryside could have more children, people in number of places, and so on and so forth. So it, it's not the caricature that we often see in the press. But then you look at South Korea, for example, where they were basically doing something, uh, you know, a bit more risque, but you hardly hear about it. They were basically encouraging educated women to have children whilst discouraging the poor. <laughs> and in some other contexts, one might say, Ah, isn't that the eugenics system? Yes, it was. It's certainly not something that I'd even heard about before. Exactly, right? But this kind of, um, you know, discouraging some people from having children, others like saying, oh, it's a good idea for you. It's been going on from, you know, for ages. And just because it hasn't got that heavy label of one-child policy, people don't really pay much attention. Also, you have terribly misguided policies encouraging people to have children and well that... yes this this is what I, this is what i wanted to get onto actually um <laughs> with the next question because right so so we've we've already started to get onto these geographical differences between countries and uh in europe and japan the population is aging the fertility rate is going down as a consequence of that i think yeah um you know the birth rates declining i think in europe it may be already below uh repopulation or getting there and there are economic and societal effects because you have a smaller base of taxpayers that's supporting a growing number of pensioners and you know there's all kinds of issues associated with that and so there are incentives for these governments to encourage uh fertility and encourage births and um some people will say that these economic and social problems can be solved by uh migration others will say technology i mean how, how do you think individual Yes, people always say technology. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you look at Japan, the, the amount of the, they have a lot of people doing research into humanoid robots to take care of the elderly there. And you know, one of the main things they have is people working on things like uh, exoskeletons and mm. support robots that will lift um, elderly people and things like this. You know, well, they, so they are... let, let's look at Japan, right? Because yeah, that let's, is, let's uh... look at it as an example. How do you think? people are dealing with it and how do you think they should deal with it so the arguments uh in relation to aging is this is the end of the world we must not have aging we must avoid it at every cost therefore let's keep the population growing or at least at the same level it doesn't matter if it's sustainable or not you know we're just thinking about pensions and about tax so we've how long ago i don't know centuries ago decades for for the pension system we designed a system that was a ponzi scheme and inherently <laughs> inherently the same it will crack it will fail and we're saying well well uh, but let's not us deal with it let's the next generation deal with it for now let's just make it slightly worse and not really address the underlying problem the underlying problem is the ponzi scheme 
right? So we, if you have a system that always requires there to be more people in work than they are retiring, and you had a population bulge that will age, then you just have a, a completely crazy approach because you know that bulge will never go away because you just keep adding to the bulge. Oh, well, it's fine as long as your population carries on exponentially growing forever, right? Exactly. So, and also it's just it's just taking one not imaginary problem. You know, there is a real problem there. How how to change economic systems that had been built on assumptions of infinite growth, including taxation and pensions, right? These are not easy, but they have to be done, right? It has to be done. But at the end of the you know, if you just look at what the worst thing that could happen here is like um, people could get failed pension schemes. Yes, that is a real possibility. There, there could not be enough people to look after elderly people. Yes. Now compare this with a situation where there is no food in your supermarket shelves because you are Japan. Your own resources can only support about 15% of your population. You depend on other people selling your stuff. And they don't want to because they need it for themselves. The risks of population vastly exceed the worst case scenarios in terms of dealing with an aging population. And fundamentally, you have to deal with an aging population. It will happen, right? Just just trying to delay it doesn't make it better. It just delays it, possibly makes it worse, right? It's not a responsible way to approach something that you know needs to be resolved because it cannot go on. It's a Ponzi scheme. But because we have this mentality that's been going on for so long, it's much easier to just say, well, let's just do what we did before because that worked. And, you know, young people, they can figure something out. And you've already talked about moving away from an economic model that's based on infinite growth. So do you see the economic, the social, the political system that we have being capable of dealing with this problem of overpopulation and related problems like climate change? Or do you think it is necessary for us to move to a different model? And then what would that model be? I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible because, you know, who knows? Maybe when, maybe if some early crisis was serious enough, but not devastating enough that there's still a working government afterwards, people would be traumatized into action, you know, and and do something decisive about climate change and overpopulation uh, in a time frame that is not completely stupid. But it just seems quite unlikely because our economic systems are geared towards internal growth, our political systems are short-term based, and democracy is not good at dealing with long-term problems generally. And what you, you have here is, a, as you've just described, a collective action problem, mm-hmm. and we're terrible at dealing with those. And also a transnational uh, collective action problem, we are even worse at dealing with those. There's, you know, It's like climate change. Well, climate change is, to my mind, and aspect of overpopulation you have a conflict between uh people of one generation and people of the next generation and those yet to come you have a conflict between the people of this generation in one country or one area and those of you know the next generation somewhere else who might have to deal with either immigration or the effects of consumption that come to hit them and were, you know, caused by the choices of people elsewhere. So there's interest between different 
age groups, different nationalities, different areas in the world, different social positions. So it could be politicians trying to just, you know, get elected and just saying something popular right now that speaks to people's immediate, you know, economic interests and not their most important interests. Uh, because people don't think that way. And and then you have uh, capitalist interests, which will work very hard to stop anything getting in, their way, in the way of their profits. And I think capitalism will kill us, <laughs> probably, uh, be, be, before we, we, we can solve any of these problems. But if, if there is hope, I think it's much more likely to be that we will move away from capitalism and have some sort of adjusted version of democracy that is better able to deal with long-term problems. Uh, when What we move away from in terms of what the economic system would be, it would have to be something more planned and not allowing people to just go and consume as much as they wish. It, it, it's just the nature of the thing. You're in a system that is overheated and really strained. You, you can't have you know, everyone be free to accumulate and consume as much as they wish, because that's part of the problem. And just regulating industry has been pathetically ineffective, partly because they have so much political power, which takes us to the other problem that in democracy has not been very good at this. And we need some sort of insulated technical bureaucracies where decisions about big deal things are based primarily on scientific advice and not on the whims of the moment as, you know, altered by misapprehensions, fake news, <laughs> or corporate power, or political expediency, or just, just sheer ignorance when something is just very difficult to understand. You know, well-meaning people can just make the wrong call. So an adjusted version of democracy would probably be called for as well. And moving away from capitalism, and I'm not saying moving towards communism, there there has to be other options on the table, right? Mm. We've, we've tried a few things. It's not to say that these are the only things. So we I, have to I try wonder a how, much, uh, how much science fiction you read growing up. I read a lot of science fiction growing up, partly why I studied physics. <laughs> but I, I, one thing that always struck me about uh, the utopias that you get in science fiction is the the form of government rarely seems to be an issue. It's almost as if everyone just becomes enlightened oh, and yeah. acts in the sort of collective rational self interest, and <laughs> th- th- there's there's never explicitly a benevolent dictatorship or indeed a democracy where people vote and have political parties that scrap for power and fight against each other. It's 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 almost. Uh, so some some fiction has that. Uh, I, I read one uh, series of books lately, and it's entertaining. One thing that I thought was really interesting was how, with with ease, it, you know, uh, it's quite credible that under circumstances where people can see population right in their faces, they can't really run away from it. They don't really have any problem with. Uh, quite uh, severe <laughs> restrictions on people's procreative um, freedoms. So it's a series of um, books, but this, the, the, the premise of the first book is where all, all books, but um, people, people are living in an underground silo and the population is about 10,000. And it's, it's just this complex, you know, habitat underground where everything has to be very carefully passed out because the resources are very limited and they can't exit the silo because 
outside if you, if you go outside to die basically <laughs> you know something terrible happened outside mm -hmm. and in this world there's a lottery for for having babies and you know people get happy if they get the lottery because then they go in and have their long-acting contraception removed and they can try but they understand why because everything is so tight you know so little space so so few resources but it also shows how and such a short distance between cause and effect yeah, very short distance, exactly, very, very well put. Uh, whereas in the world that we're in, you could have heard that there there was some sort of devastating uh, crop failure somewhere else. You go to the supermarket and, you know, supermarket might have been buying from them before, but they just switched to somewhere else and you don't see the results yourself, right? The farmers could be feeling um, the effects of climate change this year, maybe because, you know, with all this unseasonably warm weather that the pests that would have died out by now are still there or birds have died or some, some other result we don't feel it in town and most of us now live in towns we, we just lost the connection with the natural world we, we it's all very easy for us to imagine that we can solve everything with technology and that the earth can produce you know tons per meter of land when you haven't actually had any contact with the land and also when when things have been dispersed and moved and moved around so far that you don't really have a sense of where the effects of your choices fall right so our, our world is everything so diffuse and distant it's easy to hide all sorts of sins whereas in this little novel you can't really hide and you can't really you cannot fail to understand the limitations of your world because they're in your face but for us it's quite difficult so one of the things that concerns me when it comes to thinking about climate change, environmentalism, sustainable development, population, that kind of thing, is that people can sometimes flippantly, when they argue that population is the problem, they can almost exonerate themselves because they're saying, well, I don't have children or I don't have 10 children, as if to say there's no onus on people to change their behaviour, even when in wealthy countries, our consumption and our you know carbon emissions, whatever metric you want to talk about, water we consume, food we consume or whatever, is, is far many times more than people in poorer countries. I mean, people worry about how we weight future generations, but in 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 focusing on population as a problem, it's almost weighting uh, groups of people against each other. And there's all kinds of morally concerning conclusions you could draw if you started using population as an excuse. So I wanted to ask if you saw a trade-off between talking about population and talking about consumption, affluence, and how to kind of negotiate the issues surrounding uh, people changing their lifestyles and people not being born, ultimately. Sure. Yes. So, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on this particular topic. <laughs> yeah. learning. So I'll, I'll try to, like, sprint through the highlights, uh, if I may. So one one thing to just make very clear is that both consumption and population matter, right? Mm -hmm. This is completely uncontroversial. But one thing that is often neglected is... People just want to say it's, it's fundamentally overconsumption, though. It's, it's not popular. And that is just a plain lie. It, it's, it's a lie. And they cannot honestly think that's true, right? It, it's not the case that some people don't consume at all. It's not the case that we have an option not to consume at all. So if need be, we can just live on nothing. None of this is true. Everyone consumes, even, even if a little, but everyone consumes. And human nature has to be taken into account. We're not angels. Any one of us, if given a chance, would probably consume more. 
Right. And I think people who talk in that way also, who are concerned about the consumption, they, they want things like equality. But for them, equality doesn't mean everyone consuming the amount that the lowest person does. It means everyone <laughs> no, being brought up to exactly. you know, the, the standard of a millionaire. Which you can't do. It, you can't do. There was another study um, looking at what kind of equality we could have before the earth cracks and bursts into flames basically and we couldn't even get give everyone a secondary education that was one of their conclusions you know that that's pretty basic so the more of us there are in order to secure equality the more miserable the equal standard would be and no one likes that but so they think well we'll figure something out which is just falling back into risk acceptance and imaginary technological solutions which is really immoral but in terms of consumption again right we know consumption matters but let's think about population risks if push comes to shove say during a war you can roll down consumption to a lower level you can it can happen you can't do that to population right if if you've grown your population by several million more then it it turns out you didn't have the resources to look after everyone you know, things didn't turn out as you hoped. And then what? You can't roll it back. You can't say to, you know, a proportional population, sorry, folks. Turns out we didn't develop the technologies we wanted to. Exactly. Yeah, sorry that, you know, we thought we were going to have some sort of magical technology that would expiate our sins, but it didn't come through. So, sorry, no food for you. Bye. There's no such a thing, right? When you increase your population, you're making a very long-term commitment of consumption because you need to make sure that you, you, you're able to meet the basic consumption needs of the extra people that you've created during their entire lifetimes, right? So, And you cannot really flexibilize that requirement. You cannot roll it back if things go bad. They will need some food. They will need some medical care. They will need housing. They will, consumption footprint increases. The minimum consumption footprint increases with population in a way that's inflexible. Whereas other things, any frippery that you have that, you know, oh, people are using all sorts of disposable things that are really damaging to the environment and no one really thinks they're ethically upstanding. You know it's a sin. Yeah, you can deal with those. You make a small difference to our ecological pressure, really. You know, but it's still, we need to do it. We need to do it. But it's it's marginal. You're just shaving at the corners. When you're growing the population, you're growing the number of consumers. You're growing the number of people. Even if they don't consume a lot now, if given a chance, they will consume more. And even poor people have an environmental impact, right? So all of these things count. And you have to look after all these people. Now, let, let's consider uh, what people are saying when they say we should really focus on overconsumption. What they're saying, I want to avoid this problem. Because no one is saying how exactly they're going to deal with overconsumption. To start with, it's impossible to offset population growth through consumption reduction. It's impossible. You cannot do it. Because one of them, you're multiplying consumers. And the other one, you can only reduce marginally. right? Because people still need to consume. To live, you cannot reduce to zero. You, you, you can only reduce marginally. So you can never offset new people by reducing consumption of other people. It's just not going to work. And then there is a question of how would you reduce their consumption? No one is saying exactly what is proposed because they don't have any proposals. They just want to avoid the conversation about population. So they say, oh, the real problem is overconsumption. It's not true. There is a problem. 
it is real, but it's not the only problem. It's not the most serious over the long term. And then what is their suggestion exactly? Are they saying we will pass a law saying that everyone's income in the UK should not exceed 18,000 pounds a year? Is that what they say? Will they pass that law? Or are they thinking of curbing, you know, a, a myriad choices that people make? in consumption styles, you know, day to day. Are they going to pass all sorts of laws saying you can't eat meat more than once a week? Enormous aspects of people's lives, either drastically reducing their incomes or prohibiting all sorts of choices that you do on day-to-day life, every day, every day for the rest of your life. On the other hand, you have, you know, have fewer children. <laughs> right? As, as, you know, as a system of incentives and encouragements right. rather than anything yeah. else. Yeah. And like... And, and as it turns out, because having children is, it can be a great experience and a lot of people get enjoyment from it, but a lot of people don't. And a lot of people feel ambivalent about it, but you know, whether or not they like it or not, you know, everyone could try once and find out maybe, you know, if, 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 if the beginning uh, of the story is not that I know this child will come into danger, but you could give everyone a fair shot at trying parenthood is for them and, and then say, but no more. <laughs> but there's nothing magical about having a larger family. That means people are going to be miserable. They can be perfectly happy just having one or two. And there are all sorts of possible healthy outcomes that could come out. For example, greater gender equality. You know, if much less of women's lives is spent looking after children, it's much less scope for discrimination. Right? So on the one hand, you have potential policy, um, you know, discourage people from having more than one child. It, 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 is, it is a it is a case where we need to approach this problem from lots of different angles. You know, people need to be looking at technological solutions. They need to be looking at consumption yeah. solutions. They need to be looking at population solutions, and weighing up the pros and cons, but not treating any one of them as taboo. So to absolutely, speak. absolutely, we have to do all of these things. We do have to have policies to tackle uh, destructive consumption and overconsumption. We do have to you know bring fertility rates down we we have to have honest conversations about immigration as well bearing in mind that we don't have an international government you know world government dealing with these things uh we have to have some real effort to developing helpful technologies not just technologies that transform one problem into another problem or or they accelerate consumption you may be familiar with Jevons paradox where you yes find a uh... yeah a way to it looks like you're doing something environmentally friendly you just make it easier for people to consume more. <laughs> yeah, let's just briefly sort of talk about that. So this is the idea that if you install energy efficient light bulbs, for example, people just um, buy more light bulbs. People buy more light bulbs and they, 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 use, yeah, they, they turn they the lights on more because it doesn't cost them. Corners in the house, yeah, all sorts yeah. of new uses for light that you didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, over time, consumption has increased and increased. No matter the technological advancements that we've we've had, and the trend has been a bit mortifying, I think, for uh, for people who care about <laughs> the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one very good analogy I found this um, in Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold is that was in 1947, right? And he was already predicting the kind of narrative because he could see see it then in 1947 that people were already saying oh technology will solve all sorts of problems in 1947 and he's saying "Mm, yes but are you digging a deeper well or are you just improving the pump Mm. right and there's a difference in in just consuming faster what you already have and 
finding more resources and we readily assume that we're doing you know one and not the other that we're expanding the resource base when we're just accelerating consumption of existing resources for example in terms of agriculture right yes modern agriculture is amazing it has kept many many more people fed than the world can naturally support so if you if you took away um fertilizers that are you know, synthesized with mm-hmm. enormous amounts of fossil fuel and creating enormous uh, effects on, on climate change. You took that away, um, you cannot feed 7 billion people, right? There's just not no chance. You do need um, fertilizers to feed the number of people that we already have. And things like increasingly genetically well-chosen crops and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. But you think, for example, phosphate, which is apparently a controversial topic, I don't know why. Uh, you know, the, the easily accessible sources of phosphate could have lasted us for i don't know millennia until we had some sort of like easy and reliable way to recycle phosphate from urine or something we're just burning through it as if there's no tomorrow and and then what right we we, we haven't expanded agricultural productivity in the sense of finding sustainable ways to grow more food we're just using up resources that we would have used in future we're using them right now Mm-hmm. And 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 then what? So when we tell these amazing triumphant stories about how technology has solved all sorts of things and Malthus was wrong and etc., we're not telling the full story. We're just saying, ah, we tricked the bank into giving us money, so we're <laughs> rich. We're rich. Huh? I mean, it's like, but they, you know, the bank will come and ask for their money tomorrow. I, said, I may trick it again. <laughs> I am rich, but not really rich. Mm-hmm. It just tricks some money that you know eventually is going to have to come due, and 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 that kind of narrative of you know don't look further down, just look at it right now. That's the essence of any sort of long-term environmental problem like overpopulation and climate change. It's like, well, we're we're living like kings right now, therefore there's no problem. So speaking of living like kings, <laughs> this is this is really an episode in in the vein of all of the Teotwalki episodes I did that we produced a lot of last year and a lot of the feedback I got was that they were interesting but depressing and <laughs> part of me thought well good because we as a species kind of have to face up to our responsibilities and if we know that there's a problem that will potentially involve people who are suffering in the future and you know ourselves suffering in the future as well and people who aren't present right now but in other parts of the world suffering we have to face up to these responsibilities rather than just letting Netflix autoplay the next episode until we can no longer ignore the problem because it's at our doorstep, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I think the reason it's important to remember that the reason to contemplate and study these risks and think about the ethics of them and the solutions and the problems and the, the way these things are communicated and so on is because we do have the power to make it better than it might otherwise be. So I'd like to end by asking you about your vision for a future where people tackled this problem of population and the kind of society we might have, the kind of values it might emphasize. Okay, so um, one thing to start with is it's in the nature of population growth, because it's compound, that even quite small differences in how we do things now yield enormous dividends over the longer term. But it also means that you, you have to start soon and not delay, right? So when you look at the population projections from the UN, um, the 
median projection, which is assumed to be the world in which we live. And that's not the case. <laughs> the world in which we live, you just extrapolate the line from where we are now, just keeping everything constant. You end up in about 26 billion at the end of the century. 26, right? So that's so. Hang on, that's the median UN projection. No, no, no. So the, that's the, the business projection. as usual. This business as usual projection. Right, assuming that we're not stopped by calamities. Uh, and a study found that it would be quite difficult for calamities to stop us because we, you know, we keep on having children even when we're starving. So if you just extrapolate from where we are, change nothing, you know, keep mor mortality and fertility the same uh, and just look at where that ends in the end of the century, it's about 26 billion, right? So when people look at the UN projections, they think that the median projection is just extrapolating from where we are now. If nothing changes, we end up in 11 billion at the end of the century and still growing to the next one, which is scary enough. But they don't realize that that is not an extrapolation where we are now. That is assuming a substantial fall in fertility rates over time. So it's assuming that the average family size for people will, will fall considerably from where it is now to get to 11 billion at the end of the century, right? Remembering that people who are children today will likely be alive then, right? To see 11 billion uh, in a potentially climate change wrecked world. <laughs> but let's let's think of a more positive picture, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you look at the, uh, the projections and what they do is just to exemplify how things could be different. That's how the UN does things, right? They take the median projection where they've built in some optimistic but not you know out of this world assumptions about fertility rates coming down and then what they do is um add half a child on average to one version of that and that becomes the high fertility version and then they subtract from again from the median subtract a half child on average from the median uh projection and just see the difference over time and the difference is enormous it's like nine billion from one to the other <laughs> In between, right? So the the high fertility projection is over 16 billion at the end of the century, and that's just it's just people having on average half a child more than in the median projection, and the low projection is a population of about seven billion at the end of the century. Still large and risky, but much less risky than 11 billion. Much less risky. Much less risky than 16 billion. Right? And the difference overall, like between the low and the high, is one child. It's, you know, per family. Yeah. Yeah, that's all it is. And over time, the difference ends up being more, you know, it's like 9 billion people, more or less, that you could or could not create in a potentially quite damaged world. So things could change so much if, if we now were a bit more prudent procreatively speaking and you know if, if people just decided worldwide to adopt a, a small family model because we do need to shrink we don't need to just stop growing we need to come down to a safe <laughs> level and that takes time so for some time people will have um to do with smaller families than they may desire they're they are going to have to do with many things that are not what they desire uh, including consumption choices that they're going to have to forego right so that there would be pain but that's to avoid quite horrible risks from crystallizing and and from being imposed on people yet to to come that haven't had a say or a choice so in an ideal world we would exercise reproductive restraint and everyone would just have 
one child at most two and people who are not really in a condition to bring children to the world would have none until such time as they are in a condition to look after uh, a child well and we would really dramatically reduce our consumption of meat dramatically because it not only makes us into monsters but it's killing the planet <laughs> so you really have to do it it doesn't mean zero um doesn't have it doesn't have to be a world of vegans, but it does have to be much less than we already do. And consider that a lot of people would like to consume meat and are not yet consuming and would like to if given a choice. So there's a lot of frustration of people's consumption wishes uh, to come and that needs to be confronted and accepted. It's just going to have to happen. Um, and we're going to have to have some conversations about um, immigration and just having their uh, approaches to deal with refugees because what happens right now is that if, if your country is falling apart and it may be because of overpopulation and whatever you know whatever caused the overpopulation to happen over time the people that are currently in need you cannot blame them you cannot say well you know <laughs> it's your parents fault it, it doesn't matter right uh, they need to be looked after and what's happening is they will say to a rich country, let me in, and the rich country say, mm, I'm, I'm going to say no, thank you. And then they go to a, a medium income country and they say, oh, let me in. They say, oh, no, thank you, definitely hard pass. So what they do is go to a, a low income country that's already quite vulnerable, but they are very bad at protecting their borders, <laughs> right? So they go in there because that's the only place they can go. And, then, and we've seen we've seen this yeah. in the Syrian refugee crisis that the, the neighboring countries have uh, had the most refugees by far compared to yeah. countries in see, Europe and the US that absolutely. make a much bigger stink about it. You see that um, much um, more in Asia and Africa than in the Syrian crisis because at least the countries surrounding Lebanon, it's not like they don't know <laughs> that they're receiving because mm. they're not that vulnerable themselves. They're they are, you know, aware of what's going on. But uh, a country like Shad in Africa mm -hmm. is just not able to control its borders. And they are surrounded by uh, countries that, that are in, you know, having problems with their populations. And Shad itself is, is just a time bomb waiting to happen. Niger as well. These are countries in, in areas that they are semi-arid and pastoral populations there's not much they can do agriculturally wise because you know the system is, is just not able to support many people but it's the population has been growing enormously fast so you already have this built-in problem and this is just going to unfold in, in in tears and then there are people pouring into the border and that's a perfect recipe for for war basically and for human misery of the worst kind you see that in asia as well uh you know you know uh, People are crossing into the border from um, Bangladesh into India, and things things don't end too well when people who are already poor <laughs> see people who are poor from elsewhere coming in through the border <laughs> and saying, "Oh, uh, uh, please help me." <laughs> you know, uh, we we have to have a think about how to deal with um, the fact that a lot of modern immigration, oh, Im well, immigration, immigration. Um, and refugee systems, like the division between people escaping prosecution or people escaping war and people just escaping grinding poverty and, and destitution is becoming irrelevant. All right. So some, something we need to be responsibly done about it. But it needs to be 
in order to be fair and acceptable democratically to, to people, it needs to be in a very global way, you know, like discussed and agreed, where everyone is on the same boat and, 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 and trying to minimize the harm that we've already put into the system by exercising procreative restraint, avoiding uh, excessive consumption, principally in the West, obviously, not, not elsewhere. But, you know, there are all sorts of things that, depending on where you are, that people can do to minimize their impact. So these are the choices that I see ideally. People, you know, turning their minds to in future. Um, ideally, we'd all, you know, deal with these things like rational adults and not like... Uh, people in some sort of fugue state <laughs> avoiding dealing with reality or just, you know, this would probably not happen to me and the next generation can deal with it. And then whether or not it happens to the next generation or to you, you've done something very bad, right? So that that's not the way to deal with things. And, and also just realistically engaging with the evidence and not just thinking that, growth can can go on forever because that's scientifically implausible you know people can have philosophical hopes that this can turn out to be the case due to transformative technological breakthroughs but you cannot count on it <laughs> so let's be responsible about it and, and rational and, and deal with these things and accept that there will be pain really but hopefully avoiding much greater pain so we're talking realism rationality responsibility and acceptance that you, you don't get cost-free solutions, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, Karen, I'm sure that you've given all of the audience an awful lot to think about. And I'd like to say thank you so much for uh, spending so much time on this interview and uh, uh, telling us about all of your research and studies. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope you can make something sensible out of this <laughs> two hours of rambling <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. I think this topic is a really important one to debate, even if you don't agree with everything you hear about it, even though it's incredibly complex and prone to all kinds of misunderstandings and moral hazards. Sometimes dealing with humanity's problems isn't always easy. It requires difficult conversations. But if we don't engage in this dialogue, if we don't confront the issues head on, if we don't decide what our values are, then the decisions will be made for us by people who might not have our best interest at heart. So if you'd like to be part of that conversation, there are plenty of ways you can get in touch to discuss this or any of our episodes. The best is contacting us via the form at www.physicspodcast.com, but you can also reach out on Twitter at PhysicsPod or Facebook at the Physical Attraction page. Soon we'll be launching our series on nuclear fusion. I'm going through some very busy weeks at the start of this. I may have to duck out for the odd week. But rest assured, there are enough scripts written for us to keep doing shows way into 2019, and I'm not done writing yet. So stick around, we'll explore all kinds of things in the world of physics and beyond. Until next time, be kind to each other.